Hello everyone, this is Brian Ferguson, the host of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I want to tell you about a new podcast out called Fouls Count Anywhere. It is a classic pro wrestling podcast that brings you the legends of wrestling with true wrestling fans Chris DiCarlo and Charlie Turner. They bring on guests that are legends in this business as well as wrestlers of today, promoters, referees, you name it, they have them on there, folks. And I encourage you to listen to them. If you're on YouTube, watch them. They drop every Saturday. They have their podcast. They drop it in the afternoon. So look forward to that podcast coming out. Falls Count Anywhere podcast with Chris DiCarlo and Charlie Turner. Folks, you will not be disappointed. I guarantee it. And enjoy the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Brian Ferguson, the host of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. We are on here today because of you, viewers and watchers like you. In order to continue the podcast, we need to monetize our YouTube channel so we can get guests on that require financial compensation. That's where viewers like you come in. If you subscribe today, we can get that number up to 1,000. And as an incentive, the 1,000 subscriber will receive a free t-shirt just like this and receive a book from the legendary George Shire on his Minnesota golden age of wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors, signed by George Shire himself. So please get on there, tell your friends to subscribe today. And when you hit that 1000 mark, you're gonna get a t-shirt like this. I'm gonna reach out to you. You're gonna be coming on the show as a guest and receive that book the Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne of the Road Warriors, signed by George Shire. So get on there today, subscribe, and please enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today, repeated guest, great guy, love him to death, good friend of mine, wrestling historian. If it ain't true, if it ain't, uh, George doesn't say it, it ain't fact. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, George Shire. George, thanks for coming on today. Wow. It has been a few weeks uh, since you and I got yeah. together and, uh, Every time you do that introduction, uh, I honestly, I, I look around. I want to see who it is we're introducing. Uh, <laughs> if it isn't true, you whatever you say, don't, don't tell that to my wife. <laughs> Boy, my wife will tell you I'm never right. <laughs> and she's right. <laughs> so, yeah, well, good. I'm glad we're back together again. Yeah, me too. Good to see you. Um, just a quick uh, thing before we start. I just want to say that during the broadcast, if for some reason I'm clearing my throat or I, uh, whatever, uh, for the last honest to God month, I've been dealing with, uh, as I went to the doctor last week, severe bronchitis. And uh, I'm taking meds. And But boy, I'll tell you, whatever it is, this Minnesota winter crud, it just will not let me be alone. So. I apologize to the listeners if, if I do that, and I'll be sipping water here and there. And then very quickly, Brian, 
Um, it has been covered across the uh, Facebook pages, internet pages. We did lose uh, one of our old school, uh, very underrated uh, wrestlers, but certainly leaving a fantastic mark on the pro ranks and the business. And that was Johnny Powers. And it has been covered elsewhere. So I'm just going to say thank you, Johnny, and uh, rest in peace. All right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Very underrated, <laughs> underappreciated uh, wrestler from the day. So, all right. Today, our subject off the cuff here, I want to talk about the big three, the NWA. General Motors, Ford yeah, Motor General... and Chrysler Corporation, right? Right. Well, the automaker big three, no. The wrestling oh, oh, big okay. three from back wrestling in the day. Big three. Okay. Okay. NWA. No, I could NWA. talk about the I could talk about the car big three too. I, I know you could, yes. Yeah. No, I I've just given you a hard time. I know. AWA, NWA, WWF. A lot of uh things occurred in the nineteen early sixties. And I just kind of want to talk to you a little bit, if I could, about it, George. How how that occurred, how they went off, and, and, and why, and kind of the result of that. So let's talk about about why it happened, uh, when it occurred, and, and why it occurred. If, if you wouldn't mind talking about that, the AWA and WWF basically broke off a few years apart. But why did that that occur? Well. As always, I think we need to back up just a little bit, maybe. Okay. Um, and, and I'm going to, as I do this, I'm going to clear something up that has been, I think, mistold in the his, history of the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, most of us are aware that it followed anything historical that I've done and others have done. The National Wrestling Alliance was created in 1948. Uh, a conglomerate of promoters from around the Midwest got together uh, in a room, decided they were going to get together and, for all practical purposes, have one world champion. They were going to recognize the one world champion. And um, long story short on that, and I would add that Minneapolis territory, which I'm from, that was part of this group. Tony Stecker, who was the Minneapolis Wrestling Club promoter, along with Wally Carbo, who was his matchmaker at the time, they were part of this group of promoters that got together. And it was Sam Muchnick, obviously, uh, Pinky George, and, you know, the other two, three guys escaped me, but they were prominent in this, this uh, decision to recognize one world champion. So the whole thing came about where, and I've said this before, people often say the NWA territory. The NWA was never a territory. For all practical purposes, it was a champion. This group of promoters got together, created this National Wrestling Alliance, where they would recognize one champion, and then all of these other individual territories in the wrestling business at the time, in 1948, early 50s, they would be able to get the champion on their respective cards 
maybe once, maybe twice, sometimes three times a year, but they had to go through Sam Much. And Sam got a per percentage of the champion's uh, purse. I think it was like 3% that he got of the champion's purse for the night in these various towns for booking him. But it really was, you know, XYZ promoter calls up Sam Muchnick. I'd like to have whoever the champion is, you know, on these dates if he's available. And then they build the storyline in their respective towns to have the champ come in. The first champion, National Wrestling Alliance champion, was Luthes. Obviously recognized because of his long tenor in the business, respected by everyone. He was a real deal. We've talked about that. A shooter. If yep. Lou couldn't beat you, no one could. Lou yeah. was great. And if he didn't like what you're doing in the ring, you know, he'd snap a wrist or break an elbow. You know, you just cooperated with him, but he was well-respected. Now, here's the fallacy I want to clear up. As the NWA went on and Lou Thez's, um, uh history comes, it was stated that he was a six-time National Wrestling Alliance world champion. Well, that isn't exactly true. Lou was the NWA champion the first time, but he really only held the NWA Alliance champion three times because uh -huh. before the Alliance was formed, Lou had won three times the National Wrestling Association, which was just a title that he held. And so that association went away when it basically was merged with the alliance, so to speak, in 48. But they just okay. somehow conveniently put the two together and made it, you know, sort of stretch the history a little bit. So yeah. there you go. And then, of course, the rest of the NWA title history is... Uh, uh, we've talked about it before. But, yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. 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 Do you ever wonder what would happen if, well, if... If you give a dad a podcast. I'm what you call a nerdy fan. I nerd out at this stuff. Hardcore. You'll hear me talk about anime on here. You'll hear me talk about Power Rangers. You'll hear me talk about wrestling on here. Okay. Had an axe handle with a twisted T on it. <laughs> right after that <laughs> twisted T video went viral. And man, they went out and grabbed it and smacked the dude in the head with it. It was so... That's great. I'd like to think of this podcast as a nostalgia moment for me. It's a show where I can talk about whatever I want. I'm a, I'm a human and animal chiropractor. There was a picture of me. It looked like I was on the side of a ramen box over in China. But... <laughs> so I took my kids with me to Comic-Con. I thought that was really cool. Well, I don't know if my wife should listen to this podcast. We'll cut that part out. <laughs> like, and then Robert said this. <laughs> if you give a dad a podcast, available now on all podcasting platforms. So, uh, during the fifties, things in pro wrestling worked very smoothly. Uh, most of the territories around the United States. They were able to get the NWA champion in for their one or two or three times a year. Sometimes they'd get them for a whole week and use them in each town that they promoted in and that sort of thing. But um, it was always going through much. The problem was, is that there were a lot of territories 
And a lot of times a certain promoter couldn't get the champion, whoever it was. It, you know, it started with Lou and, and Whipper Watson, Billy Watson held the title. And, you know, we went on to Dick Hutton and Pat O'Connor. Uh, they, they weren't able to always get the champ when they wanted them. And sometimes one promoter seemed to monopolize him a little bit more. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, as in anything, eventually there's a little crack in the foundation. And one of the things that happened really important was that throughout the 50s, uh, that guy named Vern Gagne, he wanted to be NWA champion. That, that really, he wanted to be NWA champion. And he was extremely popular all around the country. This was in his traveling days, Brian. He yeah. would uh, he was all over the country. I mean, people don't realize this, that before his own company, he wrestled in Boston. He wrestled in New York. He wrestled in Texas. He wrestled in Florida, in Atlanta, out in California, uh, Pacific Northwest. You know, Vern, Oklahoma, you name it, Vern traveled. And Greg yeah. Gagne, his son, he's told me stories how they literally lived in a travel trailer when they were kids, when Greg was a young, young lad, that they would travel with Vern and Mary, his wife, and mm -hmm. uh, travel around. And Vern was the real deal as well. The amateur champion represented the Olympics in 48. He was an alternate. And, right. uh, but stressed, we all know he stressed that amateur wrestling background. And so it was always a natural that Vern should be a contender to mm -hmm. Lou Thez, who had the, Lou had the NWA title, uh, a really long reign for most of the early fifties up until about 57. And he personally went to, uh, Sam Wichnick and said, you know, let's take it off of me for a while. Uh, they wouldn't put it on Vern and it was Lou. Lou didn't want to put Vern over. And here's the here's the other rub. Vern didn't want to put Lou over if he didn't have to. And then their other claim was that Vern was too small to be the NWA champion. Now he had held the the only other title that the National Wrestling Alliance recognized. They never recognized tag team champions. And I'll talk right. about that in one second. But the other title they recognized was the World Junior Heavyweight title, which we all know, if you look at history, Danny Hodge practically owned for a long, long time. But yeah. Vern had it in the 50s. When he dropped it, he, uh, he wanted to uh, go to the heavyweight division. And yeah. Muchnick and Lou and other powers that be just said, well, Vern's too small to represent the uh, NWA as its world champion. So that was a contention of uh, frustration, shall we say, for Vern. Yeah. And that's where a lot of that started with him and Lou. And as the 50s moved on, Minneapolis. Now, when I say Minneapolis, I'm talking the the city that's the wrestling club many it was the minneapolis boxing and wrestling club but wrestling was their main forte so boxing we'll just leave it out of it in the equation here right 
All right. And Tony Stecker, who was the promoter, he passed away in 1954. His son, Dennis Stecker, took it over, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, which I will point out during the 50s was, as I always call it, um, under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance because Minneapolis used the NWA champion to come in, like all the other promoters did, come into the city here and there and defend the title. So Dennis Stecker took over. Wally Carbo was his his uh, right-hand man. And the, the problem became where Vern, being a Minnesota boy, had a lot of power. And in the Minneapolis region and surrounding cities, whenever Vern was on a card, it was huge on the marquee. He sold out. Vern wanted Lou to come in, drop the title to me. Vern wouldn't do it. Um, even put him over and just let him be champ, you know, and Vern yeah. in his own way thought, well, you know, we'll have a, a break off promotion, whatever. Then it got to the point where uh, 1959, the uh, title from Lou had passed a little bit from first Dick Hutton in 1957. And Dick Hutton, you talk about forgotten wrestlers in wrestling yeah. history. This guy, Brian, was the real deal as well. Great yeah. amateur champion. In fact, he even held a victory over Vern in amateur matches, if that yeah. says anything for you. Well-respected. And Lou wanted him, Lou, Dick Hutton, to be his self-chosen successor. Yeah. Sam Muchnick went along with it. The NWA promoters went along with it. So in 57, we had Dick Hutt. The only problem with Dick was, for lack of better way to say it, he was not charismatic at all. I mean, yeah. he was a great technical worker in the ring, but most people will tell you that out, his, his in-ring persona and his, his output, his voice, his interviews, he... Uh, you know, you could watch paint dry on the wall and it was more exciting. And and so what happened after a couple of years for in 57 to 59, he wasn't drawing well. And the he the promoters would have him on a gate and he'd, you know, ho hum, Dick Hutt is in town. And that was really sad, but eventually the at the 1959 meetings, they got together, the promoters. Yeah. Who were the National Wrestling Alliance, so to speak. And it was voted that Pat O'Connor would beat him and take the title. Now, Pat O'Connor, great wrestler. You had to see Pat O'Connor in mm -hmm. the 50s and the very early 60s to appreciate what a um, what a whirlwind he was in the ring. He was, you know, he was a, a high flyer before there were high flyers. Yeah. He had one of the most interesting and sensational drop kicks of any wrestler up to that time and for many years thereafter. Yeah. Lou would get up, kick you, get you right in the chin, and I mean it looked real, and Lou would be prone with your with your chin. Yeah. He'd be straight out. And then he would drop, you know, as they would do after they make the contact. And uh, but yeah, beautiful drop kick. And Pat drew really well. But again, a couple of years down the road, they want to go to a new champion. So we're going to leave the NWA at that point right there. Okay. Here's what happened in, in late 59. 
uh, Vern Gagne again, becoming incessantly frustrated that he can't get the champion. At this time, it's Pat O'Connor. He can't get him in the ring. Sam Wichnick just wouldn't wouldn't promote the match. And so the frustration led to, I'm going to do something about it. Now, an interesting thing happened in 1959, which even a year earlier, uh, which is something I don't know why it doesn't happen today. But it, what happened was the United States Justice Department was investigating that the investigating the National Wrestling Alliance for being a monopoly, meaning they owned the champion. No one else could promote a champion. No one else could have a champion. They had to go under Sam Muchnick's rules, so to speak, just use him as the goat at this point. Okay. And they were under investigation for being a monopoly. And what I said a minute ago, sidebar, it's amazing to me that the WWE has been a monopoly for, what, two, three decades now. And yeah, almost nobody 40 years. <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. And nobody has, uh, you know, claimed monopoly. But the bottom line was, is this investigation. So what Sam Muchnick, and a few of the other promoters decided they were going to do to basically get the Justice Department off their back. It worked well with Dennis Stecker because he sold his claim to the Minneapolis Wrestling Club to Vern Gagne in September of 59, uh... along with Wally Carroll. Wally and Vern originally were 50-50 partners. And they bought out Dennis Decker in September of 59. So from September of 59 to into the 60s, up until, well, a good six months, up until about March, um, Minneapolis got the NWA champion, Pat O'Connor at the time, to come in, defend his title. Uh, I remember one match I went to with my daddy, defended it to Kinji Shibuya. Fun match. But anyway, um, Vern wanted to be champion, as I said earlier, and now he owned his own territory, the Minneapolis Wrestling Club, which, you know, promoted matches not only in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, but the surrounding cities. He was into uh, some of the North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin, you know, promoting cards under the, uh, at that point, still the NWA band. Well, they came up with that fictitious challenge. And this is, uh, you know, I always ask people, go to any site. Boy, I, it sounds like a broken record when I say this. Anybody that's heard me say this. Yeah. Pat O'Connor was not, keyword not, the first AWA champion. But here's what happens. In March, actually it was uh, May of 1960, the fictitious champion or championship challenge goes out from Wally Carbo to Sam Muchnick that we want to have a match with Pat O'Connor defending the NWA title to Vern Gagne within 90 days or we will break away from the NWA and Vern Gagne will become champion by default. So that 90-day challenge, they played it up 
And again, I have the programs with the stories in them following this 90 days from May to August of 60. And they, they tell that, you know, O'Connor has refused to return phone calls. He has refused to come to the, uh, to the territory. He is dodging Vern. And we get no answer from Sam Muchnick. That was the story, but none of that really happened. What had happened in May was that Sam Muchnick agreed that Vern Gagne could break away from the NWA and start his own territory. Now, the reason he did this was twofold. Number one, by that time in 1960, the NWA champion was basically being stretched by having to go all around the country, so many defenses, not having a day off, and you know, in demand all over, and of course, being accused of being a monopoly and having to fight that off in court. So yeah. he agreed. He said, we will let you break away, tell the storyline as you want it. So it came down that O'Connor dodged Vern. And August came along. We've got our 90 days. Pat O'Connor, Sam Muchnick refused to answer the challenge. And by default, the American Wrestling Alliance, which it was in the beginning, <laughs> is formed. And we are now recognizing the true uncrowned champion, Vern Gagne, as the American Wrestling Alliance champion. That was it. And the NWA was no longer talked about. It was almost like it didn't happen. And it was interesting when that break came was because a lot of the wrestlers that had been working for Minneapolis up to August of 60, mm -hmm. they never, they didn't appear here anymore after Vern took over. Vern brought in oh. a group of his own wrestlers. Uh, there were a couple holdovers, but... Right. Byrne brought, he relied on his friends to come in and help him build the territory, the yeah. new American Wrestling Alliance. And he brought in guys like Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski and uh, Hard Boiled Haggerty and Lenny Montana and Gene Kaniski and Wilbur Snyder and Joe Scarpello, Leo Namalini. These were all big names in wrestling and they were friends of Vern. So they were in here working his cards and many others too. Those mm -hmm. are some of the prominent. So that's how yeah. that's how the AWA was formed right there. And, uh, you know, then we go down the history from there. And so I'm going to stop there and let you ask any questions or no, I, I want to move on to another break yeah, I off mean, or whatever you want to do. Well, it's let me show this. Let me show this. Yeah, go ahead, please. This is the pass off of the AWA belt being handed from Sam Muchnick to Wally Carbo going to be presented to Vern Gagne. It's Vern's belt. It wasn't the NWA belt. And that was just the fictitious tournament end. But Pat O'Connor was not the first champion. He was the NWA champ during that three-month period. But that, that's kind of a cool picture. That is a cool picture. That is a really cool picture. And I want to talk to you. I, you know, the AWA has such a deep history and lineage that isn't really talked about, unfortunately. Um, you know, Vern Gagne really changed the business uh, of wrestling 
And I don't think he gets really enough credit for what he's done. Yes, he was hard-headed. Yes, he was stubborn. But he also, from what I've known and and, and watched and, and read, he was very innovative as far as big cards, uh, you know, getting out there, getting on the television, um, things like that. Uh, can you kind of expand on that a little bit about the AWA or what Vern did for the business during that era? Well, and you know, for some of those that have heard this a, a few times, I mean, it is, it's not new news, but yes, Vern was uh, extremely an innovator in that he was one of the, uh, he wasn't the first, but he was among the first promoters that realized the real power of television when promoting pro wrestling in a territory. Mm-hmm. And Vern had become very famous along with guys like Killer Kowalski, Buddy Rogers, uh, Gorgeous George, Yukon Eric, Luthez. They used to appear on the Dumont Network, which was out of Chicago. And it was a national hookup. So ironically, a lot of people don't realize this, but in the very early 50s, pro wrestling really was kind of national long before Vince McMahon ever did his national expansion efforts starting in 1984. Because people could turn on the Dumont Network and see some of these guys that I mentioned, Vern Mm -hmm. amongst them, and realize that, wow, when they're in town, I want to go see them. And that was the reason that all of them were so big wherever they went. Uh, Yukon Eric, I don't know if I mentioned him in that list, but he was on that as well. But the the network became very important. And then when each individual wrestler or promoter went into their respective territories, they realized the importance of having a television wrestling program. And in those days, the early days, uh, the local independent station in a town, you know, I know it sounds Neanderthal with the thousands of networks and TV opportunities that are out there today for people. But when I grew up in the 50s, most towns, if you had two, three, and if you had four stations, you were lucky. You know, we had three networks. CBS, NBC, and ABC, and then each city, in this case, the Twin Cities, my towns, they would have the Independent, which was just a local station that put on local programming. And uh, Vern, Tony Stecker before him, Dennis Stecker, and then Vern, of course, made sure that his wrestling program was on those independent stations, and that's how they sold their product. If you didn't have TV outlet in any town you went to, any territory, if you did not have a TV outlet to expose your wrestlers, to let them uh, brag and boast and and be humble on their interviews and showcase their talents in matches on TV, if you didn't have TV, you didn't draw in the town because nobody knew about it. And you couldn't draw a crowd by simply having a poster of a wrestling card on the local lamppost in the downtown area or in the storefront window of a, of a department of a furniture store or whatever it was, which they did these things, but that Mm -hmm. wasn't going to, the people had to see them and they got to go see them. That was the thing. See them on TV and want to go see them at the arena. 
So yeah. Vern had had All Star Wrestling, and um, that alone is what launched the AWA. And yeah. throughout the '60s, then, I mean, it continued from the '50s, but throughout the '60s, uh, the AWA. This has been said to nausea, but Vern Ganya's AWA was the promotion that any wrestler of any merit wanted to work in the AWA. And when you talked earlier about the big three, mm -hmm. the AWA was one of those big three. Yep. And the majority of those wrestlers would, a lot of times, if they had their option to do so, would choose the AWA over the other two or some of the other independents that were big mm -hmm. because it's been said because of the travel schedule, which was a lot less, a lot, a, a lot less uh, uh, difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, guys didn't have to work six, seven nights a week. They could work maybe four or five. And when you break all that down, they could be home more often with their families when they were in the AWA and they could have time off. And so it became a very, and, and Vern, I'm going to tell you this for fact, any wrestler that, and, and we've lost all of them now. I mean, mm -hmm. we mentioned Johnny Powers. He's like one of the very last AWA guys from the sixties, seventies. Mm -hmm. And uh, any one of them said that back in the day, if you worked for the AWA, Vern paid well. They got yeah. good paydays. And Vern was true to his word. If he told yeah. you he was going to pay you X dollars, you got paid X dollars. He didn't fudge on it. He didn't cheat you out of it. Um, we could flash forward to today's world and you hear stories about the, the dying days of the AWA and how Vern had some issues with paydays. I don't like it that his last three years in the wrestling business have to be uh, soiled with, you know, really what he wasn't yeah. back in the day. So yeah. that answers, I hope that answers your question about the television it, it, aspect. It, it was vital. Yeah. No, it does. Um, he was very innovative for that era of getting on television, uh, you know, going around to different stations around the country and, and, and getting his, their program on their, on their networks. So he could, when they went into town, they knew who they were. And that's, and that was very, at that time, you know, cause you had to do a lot of traveling to, to do that. It was very innovative. Like now you push a button and you send your information to the, to the networks. I mean, you had to actually go in there and, talk to them and, and, and do all that, you know, do the salesmanship. I would point this out that, you know, television, uh, those independent stations back in the day, they welcomed a wrestling program on their station because it was, it was very cheap to produce. They had very little to do other than provide a, a little area in their studio where the promotion would put up a wrestling ring. And they'd have, you know, a couple rows of bleachers for fans to come in and be in the studio audience. And it was a very small area. I mean, uh, and, and the, the stations, they could then sell their advertising and make money. That's how they made their money in the early days where yeah. the, the 
wrestling, you know, Vern Gagne didn't pay in those days in the 60s to put All-Star Wrestling on the air. Channel 9 or Channel 11, which we had wrestling on here during those uh, that decade, they wanted it on because they could sell their advertising and their advertisers liked it because wrestling was a popular program. Yeah. That kind of changed when we get into the 80s when the promoters were then buy, paying to have their program on a station and paying the station big money to promote the show. And, uh, you know, as it is today, this is unrelated, but it adds a finish to maybe this particular part of the topic. In the latter days of the AWA from about 85, 86, 7, and so on, Vince McMahon Jr. was actually going into the respective cities that he was raiding wrestlers from and paying the TV stations to not run Vern's AWA. Paying them to not run it and put his show on the air instead. Yeah. And again, that's when Vern started losing TV. You take his TV spot off, the fans don't know about the cards, losing talent. That's what happened to the AWA. And that's a funeral that I... I'm going to leave alone for right now. Yeah. So yeah. that that's, it kind of did full circle. Yeah. Unfortunately, yes, it did. Um, now I want to talk about the WWWF <laughs> at the time, which was a part of the NWA until they broke off. And I would like your uh, perspective on, how that occurred, why that occurred, how it occurred, and kind of full circle like we just talked about the AWA. Well, part of it is, again, kind of the same story as Vern's break-off. Um, some of it was frustration in not being able to always get what they wanted from the NWA. Again, Sam Wojcik, let's just leave him to be the NWA at this point. Okay. Uh, but what really happened behind the scenes was, you know, the WWWF, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, that was uh, created in 1963. But it wasn't a new company. You know, like Vern's AWA, the, the territory had been around for two decades before that. So originally it was Capital Sports, which uh, was run by... Um, Toots Mont and Vince Sr. And they, uh, the, the business was owned earlier than that by uh, uh, Vince's senior's dad. Uh, what, I'm forgetting his first name here for right now. Um, good heavens. See, even I have those brain losses. Uh, but his, his grandfather, Vince Jr.'s yeah. grandfather. So anyway... What happened in 1961, well, I'm, oh wait, I'm going to back up. Okay. In, nine, we got, this, this is important to tell this part of the story. In 1957, in Chicago, June of 57, Luthez, who was the NWA champion at the time, had a match against uh, Frenchman Edouard Carpentier. 
that match was a two out of three fall match. But in the second fall, Carpentier had won the first. In the second fall, Luthez storyline or real, which I guess we could think about as I tell this story, he hurt his back and he couldn't continue. So what happened was, is there was a group of promoters that started recognizing Carpentier as the National Wrestling Alliance champion. But here's what is interesting. Sam Muchnick, Luthez, they went along with this. And Carpentier was, uh, he was booked by a guy named Eddie Quinn from Montreal, promoter right. up there. And that was kind of the breakoff point. And some of the other promotions, one of them being Omaha, Nebraska, and whatever surrounding cities, started recognizing Carpentier as the NWA champion. And not necessarily calling him NWA, but he was the world champion, and they used that match with Fez as their basis for the recognition. And, you know, in those days, Brian, we didn't have a clue. You know, whatever the promoter told us, we had no way of, I don't no even knowing about the Chicago debacle. So, yeah. um, but here's the interesting thing. For a few months, the NWA went along with this, actually recognizing, letting Carpentier being introduced as NWA champion in some cities, all the time where Lou was also the official and true NWA champion. Now, the interesting part about that is that when the title lineage is recorded, Carpentier gets no knowledge, no mention, no recognition from the NWA title. He didn't hold the title. They'll tell you he never held the title. But the truth is, he did. I mean, he was defending it. And so that was kind of part of the start of the break in the capital sports thing where they were uh, having issues recognizing, you know, which champion. And when Pat O'Connor lost the NWA title in 1961 to Nature Boy Buddy Rogers, this became a huge problem because even though the NWA board had voted to put it on Rogers, and again, O'Connor had been champion for a couple of years. It was kind of an NWA formula in those days for their champion to hold the belt for two years to three years, give or take. And then they would move it on to someone else. A lot of yeah. times the wrestler himself, the champion himself said, hey, I need a break. I, I'm worn out. I've been on the road for, you know, 365 days a year and my kids don't know me. And, you know, I, I want to drop the belt. So they'd go along with a new guy. Well, they picked Rogers. Rogers was extremely a good draw. Again, coming off a lot of that notoriety from the Dumont Network almost a decade earlier. Yeah. But here was the problem. Buddy Rogers was basically booked by Vince McMahon Sr. So Rogers' loyalties were to Vince Sr., even though he was the NWA champion. And what then happened was the NWA themselves were starting to have trouble 
getting their champion to defend the title in other towns. As senior Vince senior was monopolizing him on the East coast, upper Northwest or Northeast. I'm sorry. And so again, the foundation started to crack. And by the time we get to, uh, there was a match in, forget the exact date or time frame, but there was a match where Bruno San Martino, who was really an up and coming star, had uh, sort of had a disputed win victory over Buddy Rogers and Buddy Rogers then the uh, East Coast was recognizing him as their world champion. Or I'm sorry, Luthez. Wait, George. Bruno had a match with Luthez, and it was disputed. And the WWF said, "We're not. We're going to recognize Bruno, or in this case, Buddy Rogers as their champion." Who dropped it right away, like a month later, to Bruno in May of '63. And so yeah. from there on out, uh, the World Rest- Worldwide Wrestling Federation was not part of the NWA. And Buddy Rogers was having allegedly some health issues. It was reported that he had suffered a heart attack before the Bruno match. And Bruno just beat him in, what was it, 17 seconds or something to win the title. And Bruno was a great representative thereafter for their for their yeah. organization. And Buddy sort of faded from the so- sides uh, you know, being injured or whatever. So that's how that kind of happened. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Bruno held that title for what seven, eight years, something like that. It was it was just time. short. It was just short of it was seven, seven and a half years. He he won it May sixty-three, lost it January of seventy one. So right. seven seven years and uh whatever, eight months. So in the- Right, and then the seventies, then you still had it was still the big three, you know, the AWA, WWF, NWA, a lot of territories. Uh, but their champions, uh, I know, especially in the AWA, there was only two in the seventies: Vern and Nick. And usually back then, too, the title, even in the other two, WWF and uh, NWA, they held those championships. For the most part, there was some transitional champions, but I'm saying they held the belt for two years, three years. Can you explain why that was? Because, you know, nowadays it's six months, eight months, well, maybe a year if you're lucky. But what's the difference? What's the difference between a person like Vern, Bruno, uh, those guys held it for years. What? What's? Why was that? Why did they held it, hold it for so long? Well, there's two different reasons for each of them, for Vern and Bruno. But let me back up a second to go back to the comment about um, we had shorter title reigns or transitional champions. Please remember that during the 50s, from the onset of the uh, NWA creation. Mm-hmm. The NWA title did not change often at all. I mentioned earlier that Lou held it for 
pretty close to six or seven years before he said, you know, I want to break. I want to have it off of me. Then he took it back uh, from Whipper Watson. And then he wanted to drop it again a couple of years later and uh, lost it to Hutton, as we talked about. Hutton had it for two years, but was lackluster, did not draw well. And he lost it to O'Connor. O'Connor held it for two years from 59 to 61, which again, as I said, the NWA formula, though fans never figured it out in those days, but their formula was the usual two to three years, maybe four years for a champion. But then they would be looking to put it on someone else. So it went from O'Connor to Rogers. When Sam Martino, let's touch on him first. Sure. When he won the title, uh, previous to Bruno on the East Coast, and which was then Capital Sports, their number one guy in the uh, Upper Northwest, or I always say West, it's Upper Northeast, Northeast Territory, uh, was Antonio, or Antonino was his official name. Sometimes they called him Antonio. Antonino Rocca yeah. uh, was their big guy. But he was at a point where he wasn't going to carry the title. So that's where Bruno came in. Bruno was young. He was strong. He was over. He had been over in, in uh, Montreal and he was over on the, in the Northwest. So they put it on him. The key thing to Bruno was that he was, for lack of a better term, an ethnic champion. He drew well as a baby face because of the huge Italian population in New York and the rest of the territory. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense. He drew well. You know, it's legendary that Bruno defended monthly in the Madison Square Garden. All of the reports say that he sold the garden out. I think credit also has to be due to some of his monster challengers that he was put in against. But Bruno Bruno was the draw. They came to see Bruno win. And drawing well whether he did officially sell out every garden you know that's open for a dispute you know sometimes newspapers would report a an attendance higher than what it was but yeah for all practical purposes the garden was full for seven and a half years with bruno on top and again the only reason that bruno eventually dropped it in january 71 was he went to vince senior and he said i've got numerous little injuries aches and pains and i've been on the road for so long and i i want to uh i want to take a break i i want to take a break and in through some discussions bruno actually recommended and asked who his successor would be he wanted ivan Kolov. He had a lot of respect for Ivan. They had met many times previous with Bruno's title on the line. Of course, Koloff didn't win, but he was the hated Russian. Yeah. You know, and remember, still 50 years ago, wrestling was able to use all of these prejudices and these uh, things with with uh, ethnic groups. You know, the Russians, The, I mean, you could have bad uh, Germans and you name it. So... Koloff was his choice. But the problem with the uh with Vince Sr. is he wanted a babyface champion. 
it was unheard of in their mindset for whatever reason that, well, we could have a baby face beat Bruno, but for some reason he didn't feel that was logical. So yeah. they decided they needed a baby face champion and they were going to go with Pedro Morales, who was next to Bruno, the next most popular wrestler in the territory for the company. Yeah. And he had that whole Puerto Rican, which again is a huge part of the population, at least back then. I don't know how it weighs out today, you know, in our yeah. society, but back then it was, it was a huge draw. So Bruno lost to Koloff. And uh, as we know, just a month later, whatever the exact time frame was, he dropped it to Pedro, which was um, the plan. And I remember at the time hearing about it on a side note when I heard that Bruno had lost to Koloff and then immediately lost to Pedro. I remember thinking, why wouldn't they have went with Koloff for, say, six months or a year and have him really build up this hated Russian thing? And, you know, he beat the mighty Bruno and we got to find a challenger for him and have him destroy some of the baby faces that never got title shots with yeah. a baby face champion. So, you know, that would have been the chance for Jay Strongbow and and uh, maybe even Pedro and all the other babies that were in the area at the time for six months or so to, to get a title shot. And then Pedro surprises everyone and he finally upset the title and took it back. <laughs> so that was my idea. But Vince Sr., he went with it. As it turns out, he made a good decision. Koloff dropped it to Pedro, who held it for uh, a couple of years. Yeah. And he was a good draw, but he wasn't as good at the gate as Bruno was. And so it was decided they were going to take it off of him. And by this time, they were able to coax Bruno to come back. And he had wrestled sporadically, but to come back, they had Pedro drop it. Again, one of these coffee break title changes. He dropped it to Stan Stasiak, who was a, a huge heel at the time, not only yeah. on the East Coast, but in other territories throughout his career. He dropped it to Stan, and who immediately dropped it to Bruno Sanmartino. Oh. And Bruno got his, his second reign. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So yeah. that's kind of how that went. And then yeah. Bruno had it for another, boy, what was it, a couple, three years almost. He ended up holding the, the title a total of about 11 years. So yeah. he had it for another or so years. And uh, then they went, surprisingly, um, they went with superstar Billy Graham to beat him, mm -hmm. who was really over at the time. Yeah. Very charismatic, very colorful. Uh egotistical, easy to hate. They went with Superstar. And for whatever it was worth, Vince Sr. let him have it for about a year. And then, ironically, this was interesting. They wanted, Vince wanted to then put it on another baby face. Yeah. But he didn't have, in his territory, the baby face that he felt he could go with. He placed a call to Sam Muchnick of the NWA. <laughs> and he asked Sam 
if Sam could help him recommend a new successor to Superstar. Yeah. Well, Sam recommended Bob Backlund. Now, that's kind of ironic because Bob Backlund at some point could have figured in to the NWA title. But yeah, Sam was in, uh, when that happened, what, Harley Race was champion, doing really well. You know, it yeah. wasn't going to happen. So uh, Bob Backlund went and became champ over there for five years. Drew well against every imaginable monster heel again at the garden. And, and uh, Bob was, Bob Backlund during his babyface days, I don't think you'd call him Mr. Charisma. He was, right. you know, sort of, they teased him and called him Howdy Doody. Yeah. And if you ever saw the Howdy Doody character back in the 50s, yeah, he kind of resembled <laughs> him. So it, was, did, yeah. it was cute. But uh, yeah. that's how that all turned out. So that's how that lineage went. They went with champions for long periods of time, except for their transitionals. We know when we got to Hulk Hogan, you know, Backlund lost it to the Iron Sheik, who immediately turned it around because it was going to go to Hogan. That's when the expansion was going to happen. That's when McMahon Jr. now, who had bought the company from daddy back in 82. So here we are in 84, going into 85. And Junior has this vision, you know, love him or hate him. The vision was real. And sadly to say, most of the other great promoters didn't see that train coming down the track. Vince did. He made it happen. And so he immediately gave it to Hogan, who Hogan held it for, I don't have their title history in front of me, but he held it for a couple, couple, three years. Yeah. yeah. And and he was the he was the flagship. And then the rest is history with that. Right. Now you know today you mentioned sometimes they only hold it for six months or a year. Well, I think it's safe to say that after the Hulk Hogan era, um Randy Savage was in there and however their title history went. But before you know it, up to today, I mean mm-hmm. they have had champions that have been one day, two day champions. They'd yes. win it at a pay-per-view and lose it on Monday Night Raw the next night. You know, yeah. and I mean, the title, his their title, everybody in that promotion of any merit has been the WWF champion, which to me just completely dilutes whatever the title is supposed to represent. Did you ever wonder what could have been with the AWA had things gone differently? Had their fortunes gone differently? Had certain wrestlers not left and perhaps more money would have been at the disposal of the Ganyas? Well, wonder no further. You can go to Brad Drake's YouTube channel and experience the 1987 Supermod for yourself. As Brad Drake starts off in May 1987, along with Greg Ganya, Baron Von Rotschke, Vern Gagne himself, Nick Bockwinkel, Larry Zabisco, Kurt Hennig, and a slew of others as he plays and saves the AWA. And let me add a personal opinion, but I think if you think about what I'm saying, you might agree. The idea of having the long champion like Bruno, and we'll touch on Vern in a second, but Vern had his last, his second to last title reign. It lasted almost seven years. Yeah. Uh, or it was seven years. Yeah, um, seven years. It was just a little over seven years. The idea was for them 
And then Nick, we know, had it for almost five years before he dropped it back to Vern. But if you had a champion that you had a guy, a wrestler, that worked hard, I want to become the champion. That's my goal. Making wrestling appear real. That was the whole objective. That the ultimate for any wrestler was I got into the business because I'd like to be the world champion someday. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be tough. These guys have to go through this guy and that guy and the next guy. And I got to beat this guy. And when you finally get to the title and you become champion, my logic, my rationale is that it made sense then for that guy who worked so hard for so many years to be able to hold that title for a while yeah. to show that he was the champion. Now, if he, and I'm going to go use Bruno and Koloff, for example, you have a longtime champion. Fans were silent when Bruno lost. Oh my God, yeah. how did this happen? Bruno, he got beat. You know, that they weren't prepared for it. And that was the beauty of it. That was the shock of it. Because he had come to the point where fans just believed that no matter who he was against, Bruno would find a way to beat him. That's yeah. what made a champion. And that was the power of Luthez when he was champion for so long. And so Koloff wins it. He turns right around and he loses it to Pedro. Yeah. And again, I remember thinking to myself, well, now that means Bruno lost the title to two guys because Koloff beat him. And if Morales beat Koloff, that means Morales is better than Koloff, who was better than Bruno. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, they made Bruno look worse. That's just my rationale. And now he got beat by two guys. But yeah. when, when Vern had it, what happened with Vern in the early 60s, he was champ for uh, when he, 1960, when he was declared first AWA world champion. Mm -hmm. He held it for up until the next year in 61. He dropped it to Gene Kaniski for only a two-week period. Gene Kaniski gets credit, of course, for being having been the world AWA champion. But in those days, it was Vern putting the title on Kaniski because they were trying for a rematch. They had to have a reason to continue the feud in Vern's eyes. So I'll have him beat me, and then I got to get revenge. And the fans will support me because, you know, Kaniski cheated or he shouldn't have got it or Vern's better. You know, it was a good it was a good storyline. So yeah. Kaniski had the title. Then we moved into 62, and Vern dropped the title for eight months, from January to August to Mr. M, mask wrestler Bill Miller. And... Bill Miller was one of Vern's good friends, one of the guys that was helping him keep the AWA launched in the early years. And I think Vern did it as a favor, but it also drew well to have the masked man get that victory over Vern. And people, again, I'm going to go back to people don't realize how Vern Gagne's name on the marquee drew fans. Anytime Vern was on the card, whether he was champion or not, attendance did go up. Ever so much, you know, ever so lightly or a lot, it went up 
because Vern's name drew. So Miller held it. Then Vern dropped it a couple of years later. After 62, he drops it to Mad Dog Vashon in 1964. And he let let the dog have it for three years, give or take. The dog had had a short interim loss to uh, Igor in Omaha. He had a short loss of the title for, it was like three months to the Crusher. Crusher held it, but dog got it back. So for the most part, those were, again, some of those, let's draw a rematch, keep the feud going. (laughs) You know, that's the way they promoted in those days. But in 1967, then, after basically a three-year run for the dog, Byrne took it back. And then, I don't know why, to me, this one really never made sense. But in 1968, a year later, give or take, Byrne took it back in February of 67, and he lost it in August of 68, so like a year and a half later, give or take a month or two. He lost it for two weeks to Dr. X, which was Dick Byer, Mm -hmm. the destroyer everywhere else. But he put the title on the mass man for two weeks. That, again, was just a way to build a rematch. X was so hot for a whole year previous in the AWA that it made sense for him to maybe get that push. And then after he loses it back to Vern, he's into other programs with some of the babies. And, you know, his legacy goes on. Now, when Vern took it back in August of 68, it finally dawned on him, and he, he physically made this happen. He was watching the Bruno San Martino long title reign, and this is a true story. By that time in 68, Bruno had been champion for five years, five and a half years, give or take, from May of 63 to August of 68. So he'd been champion for five and a half years, and Vern decided I am the owner of this company. This is my title. I am the best wrestler. He believed that. And, well, he should. He he made it a goal that he was going to have a long reign like Bruno. And when Bruno lost his title in 71, with seven and a half years in uh, championship, Vern decided he was just going to try to see how long he could hold it. Now, he did have a hiccup. He was thinking of putting it on Nick Bockwinkle as early as later 1971. Okay. But that got derailed when uh, Hercules Cortez was killed in July of 71. Nick was being groomed as kind of the top challenger to Fern. He was going to face Hercules. He had in a couple of other cities. He was going to face him. And then on the night of the match, the morning of the match of the day, uh, Cortez was killed in a car accident. That night that he was killed, of the day he was killed, uh, Nick was supposed to wrestle him. And Vern stepped in in a non-title match last minute, said, I'll wrestle Nick, but I won't put my title on the line. I haven't had time to prepare for him. You know, a champion needs time to prepare for their challengers. And Nick beat him. You know, Vern put him over, and that built Nick up. But what happened was is that Ray Stevens 
was entering the AWA at that very same night. And he interfered in the match only in the respect that when Vern had the sleeper hold on Nick during the match, Stevens jumped up on the ring apron. Who He said he was there to scout the two guys because he had come to the AWA to get a title match. That's what Stevens yeah. promoted you know, on TV before this. So he was sitting at ringside to scout the champion and the challenger in this match. Well, during the match, sleeper hold, Vern has on Nick. Stevens jumps up on the ring apron to point out to referee Aldo Bogni, a former wrestler at that point, that, well, he wasn't a former wrestler, but he was near the end of his career, that Nick had a chokehold on on Nick. And Vern released the hold, went over, punched Stevens off the ring apron to the floor. Well, while he was doing this, Nick recovered enough to roll Vern up into the pinning position and Bogney won two, three, Vern lost the non-title. But what happened was is that Nick and Ray came out right after that on the next TV program and they were talking. Ray was saying he had nothing to do with it. You know, this was purely coincidental. But they got over so good as a tag team that Vern changed his plan. And the rest yeah. is history. Vern kept the yeah. title for another four years. By the yeah. time he got to giving it to Nick, when the Nick and Ray team had now disbanded, Vern put it on Nick, which was the original plan. And he was going to yeah. take care of behind-the-scenes stuff. So that's where his seven-year run came in, seven-and-a-half-year run. But he, his goal was at that point to have beaten Bruno's run. Yeah. And Vern believed then that he'd go with Nick, who was the flagship. And Nick, as a heel champion, oh, my God. Yeah. Powerhouse. He drew. Because five years. Five years. Five years. Five years. And Nick took the title to a level where he irritated fans and drew well because he was a wrestler. He didn't yeah. need to cheat. That's the way the fans looked at it. He didn't need to use illegal tactics. But when he did, that's what made fans angry. And so they wanted yeah. whoever it was to beat him. Yeah. And then the, the end of that story goes where in 1980, Vern had put together his, he was going to retire as an active wrestler. And whether fans agree with this or not, to me, this was a made-for-movie ending. Vern yeah. took the title back from Nick, held it for a year, made the comment during the course of that year that he was going to retire in May of 81. And winner, winner, whatever, before that time, he would retire. If he lost the title before that time, he would retire. But he wanted to retire as champion. And yeah. so they have that May 81 match against Nick. Nick was the number one challenger having been, you know, the former champ. And Vern uh, put him over, Vern won in that retirement match. And the accolades of the 20,000 plus fans in the Civic Center that night, Vern's buddies all at ringside, you know, he had Leo Namalini, his former wrestling buddy, he had the crusher. He had, uh, at that point, Larry Hennig was a good guy. He was there, Kurt Hennig was there. Rudy Boswich, who was a senator from Minnesota, U.S. senator, and uh, Billy Bai and uh, 
Bud Grant, the former Minnesota Viking football manager, they were yeah. all buddies of her and they were all ringside that night. This, the governor had declared the day, Governor Al Qui at the time, had declared it Vern Gagne Day in Minnesota. Oh, wow. So Vern, this was a storybook ending. The yeah. aging champion retires, because he was 55 at that point. The yeah. aging champion goes out with the belt. That's a movie, Brian. So yeah. any of these fans out there that say, oh, Vern had an ego and he couldn't lose the title and he was too old. Yeah, he wasn't the whirlwind he was 10 or 15, 20 years earlier. I admit that. But he drew the money and he was believable. Yeah. And Nick yeah. worked, him and Nick worked so good together. The match was beautiful. Yeah. Nick wins. Vern retires. Yeah. I mean, that's a story. That is a Hollywood movie. You followed his career throughout. You told this story of pro wrestling with the champion retiring at the end. Amen. Yeah. It was beautiful. Amen. It was. One more question, George, and that is this. Work, the big three, they worked together, even though they were uh, adversaries, per se. How did that behind the scenes kind of work. You know, we see pictures of them nowadays at the NWA convention. We see Vince Sr. and Vern with, uh, you know, Sam Mushnick or whoever the NWA, Bob Geigel, Geigel, excuse me. Uh, those guys at these conventions, even though they're supposed to be adversaries and competing against each other. And they also intermix talent with each other, which nowadays, you know, is a big no-no. But back then... They did it, you know, kind of undercover, I guess you want to say. I mean, they bring in the NWA world champion at the Garden and face somebody or bring in Vern at the Garden and vice versa. How did that kind of, I don't know, I don't, I don't play out because, you know, on TV it's like they never said it, but, you know, NWA and WWWF are adversaries, you know, or vice versa. You know, in the NWA, you don't, you know, how did that all kind of, work and play out because they broke off because they didn't care for their system but yet they were together can you kind of explain well, how that kind of worked I, I think i think the best way to explain it brian is during that territorial system that was working so well throughout the 50s the 60s and the 70s hmm. let's give it the three decades the the fans again we have to remember this was total kayfabe okay yeah and it's 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 hard sometimes when I try to tell younger fans that, you know, when I watched All-Star Wrestling on Saturday night, mm -hmm. I had absolutely, when they told me that this was the best wrestling in the world and we had the best wrestlers in the world and you no other territory has any of the best wrestlers, we believed it because that's all we saw. That's all right. we had, you know, privilege to see. The only outlets that maybe exposed us to another wrestler from another territory. When we'd go to the drugstore or the newsstand and I'd buy Wrestling Review magazine or Wrestling World magazine. And a little bit later, the After magazines came in there, but Ring Wrestling was one of them. These magazines would show you highlights of different wrestlers. And we might hear about Bruno San Martino or Gorilla Monsoon or Eddie Graham or Fritz von Erich. But that was the only way we knew of them. But yeah. we never saw them. And so 
really what would happen is these promoters, yeah, they did. For the most part, they were cohesive with each other. Um, what had happened, though, is I think some fans will remember I've said this a few times. Each territory had what we call, what I call, a mainstay. That's a mm -hmm. guy, maybe two, three, maybe four wrestlers that are in the territory all the time. Yeah. And all of the storylines in the territory are always built around those guys. Whoever the next heel comes in, whoever the next baby face comes into the territory, it eventually turns out those four or five mainstays. So using the AWA, Vern Gagne, The Crusher, Mad Dog Vashon, Larry Hennig in the 60s. And then you had in the 70s, you had Nick, of course, The Crusher, of course. Then you had uh, Billy Robinson, Nick Bockwinkle. Those became our mainstays for the 70s. Yeah. And so the way that all the ter territories worked is their three, four, five mainstays they were the heroes to the fans or the anti-heroes, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And the promoters would continually bring in challengers, new wrestlers. When that wrestler was starting to get old, not, not old in age, old in drawing power, it was yeah. time to move him on. And so in those territory days, these guys, they were, they were gypsies. They were in a territory for six months to a year maybe two years and then yeah. they it was time to move on they were getting old their their gimmick their shtick whatever it was was getting old so they'd go to another territory and it allowed them to either continue the character that they had left behind or create a new persona mm -hmm. and become the star in that territory for a year or two years but again then they'd get move on and that's the way the business worked all these wrestlers like gypsies on the road yeah. and the promoters then would work, you know, Vern Gagne, Sam Butchnick, Don Owen, Roy Shire, Vince McMahon. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy before Fritz von Erich in uh, Texas. Uh, oh, good Lord. Having a, another brain loss. Uh, his name will come to me, but Eddie Graham in Florida, you know, wherever it was, these mm -hmm. guys, would say, well, I'm going to send you so-and-so and you send me so-and-so. And, -so. and it, it was just, nobody knew, you know, yeah. all of a sudden we've got, we've got a guy and I'm going to use Johnny Powers as an example, because we talked about his passing briefly. He came yeah. here in January or at the end of February, right? Middle of February in 67. He was here until the end of September. And then made a couple of appearances back at, later on in December of 67. But he was basically here for about six months. Mm -hmm. What happened was, is he was kind of one of those guys where he was over, but he was getting old. He'd already faced the crusher. He had had title matches with Vern Gagne. He'd wrestled, you know, the other baby faces, uh, uh, Reggie Parks and Billy Red Cloud, whoever was here at the time, Doug Gilbert. You know, his time to move on. And so that's what he would do. And then we, we, we wouldn't notice, you know, a card here, card there, three, four cards go by. Fans forget. You know, yeah. They never thought about, gee, I haven't seen Johnny Powers for two months because they were too busy being introduced to the next big thing. 
and in that in in Johnny Power's case, it was guys like Doctor X and Cowboy Bill Watts who came in in '67 and kind of became the next big fans' attention and what they they built them up to be. So yeah. the business worked that way, and it was it was camaraderie. It doesn't mean that there weren't promoters every once in a while that would say, well, you know, I think I'm going to test the waters and see if I can't promote in that guy's backyard in his yeah. territory. <laughs> if he did, usually the established promoter, promotion, would call in all their resources, you know, call in all their fellow wrestler buddies. They put on this super card with all these big names on it and try to run opposition then to this new enemy coming to town. And for a while, the enemy would try to put mega stars on their on their cards. The winners were the fans, but yeah. again, it was always down to, and let's back up to what TV wrestling offered. The local promotion had the TV outlet and that, that invader promotion was struggling to do better because they didn't have the way to promote their guys. And before you know it, they might run the same night yeah. or one night apart and fans in those days they had their allegiance so they were going to go see all the guys that they recognized go to that card it was on you know on the same night they got to choose if it was a night after or a couple nights after well i only got enough money to go to one well i'm going to go see Vern Gagne. i'm going to go see the crusher whatever the case was and so the opposition would go away but for yeah. the most part the promoters got along and Vern Gagne, it's always talked about his friendship with Eddie, Eddie Graham. And yeah. Vern sent a lot of his rookies, his trainees, to Eddie. He'd call up Eddie and he'd say, I got these, this guy, that guy. You know, I'd like to send him down. He's worked with my boys up here. I'd like to have him get some more experience. Send him down there. They'd get experience. Um, he had a good relationship, Vern did, with Sam Mutch. And he had a great relationship with Vince Sr. Vince was well-liked, Sr. Yeah. was. And, you know, a lot of that changed when Junior started to see. And, you know, there were other promoters that kind of saw it, but they didn't know how to make it happen. Cable TV had come along in the, well, it's in the mid-70s, I think, some areas of the country were getting cable TV. What mm -hmm. happened there was then fans were able to see their local show. And like here in Minnesota, we had all-star wrestling, but on Saturday afternoons, you could get the Superstation TBS out of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You'd get their cable show and you saw these Atlanta guys. And some of the names you recognize, you'd maybe seen them or heard of them, but there were new faces. And it became harder for all these local promoters, established promoters in a territory to go out and tell their fans, you know, fans, so-and-so isn't going to be here. He got injured last night in the match. Well, they couldn't do that because the fans just saw him wrestling in Atlanta. Come yeah. on. So the kayfabe started to crap, the crap, crap. Yeah, crap too. <laughs> crap. And yeah. as the later 70s into the 80s, happened it became harder and harder for that illusion of realism to yeah. be expressed because no longer could they say you know 
when Pam Perro Furple lost a loser leave town, or no, he was suspended in 1964. Suspended. He will not wrestle anywhere. He's suspended. Well, UWA fans thought, well, gee, you know, Furple lost. He's suspended. Not going to be back. The poor guy doesn't have any income. But we didn't know that he'd been wrestling down in the South for the next three years. Of course he had an income. He just went to another territory. They couldn't pull that off, that type of thing off anymore once yeah. the, the cable yeah. started taking place. And there you have it. And yeah. the breakdown started when Vince Jr. started taking wrestlers, buying the TV time, uh, yeah. you know, paying some guys not to wrestle for the guy they'd been wrestling for. I mean, it was yeah. an ugly war behind the scenes. Yeah. And even then, most of the fans didn't understand how ugly it was behind the curtain. There was more right. action behind the curtain than there was in the ring. Yeah. Did that explain yeah. it for you? That did. Um, how do I, I appreciate keep it? That's okay. That's great. No, I love Please. it. Uh, George, thanks. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, a lot of insight today, folks. Uh, George is always such a wealth of knowledge, and I always I love having him on here because I always learn something new. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Shire, pro wrestling historian. Thank you. Legend, and uh, oh. thanks for coming on again, George. Really appreciate it. Folks, he's got some books out there. Uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Get out there and get that book. He's got three other books out with uh, the AWA record books from the 1960s, part 70 to 74, part one, and 75 to 79, part two. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Get on Amazon. Get on whatever book site. Get his books. He's a wealth of knowledge, and everything in there is factual. It isn't made up it isn't like he thought of it off the top of his head factual and anybody that knows go, george I, will tell you that i gotta go get a check and write it out to you again for the for the plug <laughs> oh right. man uh, brian thank please. you for having me on i love your show and you always thank you. do a great job keep it up and thanks thank for having you, me sir. on thank all you. right i will thank you ladies and gentlemen mr george shire please folks if you listening thank you if you're watching thank you and if you haven't subscribed please do so and we will talk to you soon mm -hmm.